Greetings and welcome to White Throne Baptist Church Online. Welcome to another in a series of Christmas sermons examining the various hymns of the Christmas narrative. I want to welcome you, and my name is Eric Newcomer, pastor of White Throne Baptist Church. Today we'll be taking a look in Luke chapter 1, and we'll begin about uh, verse uh, 56 uh, or 57, and we'll continue through to the end of the chapter, verse 80. And we'll be looking most specifically at a song, a song that is sung by Zechariah at the occasion of the birth of his son, John the Baptist. And this is, a, like I said, one of three uh, hymns in the birth narratives. The first one we looked at was the Magnificat, which is sung by Mary when she uh, goes to visit Elizabeth. And Elizabeth has this great reaction, this great response to uh, Mary, the Holy Spirit being active and working there. And we uh, spoke of that last time. This time is what's called the Benedictus. And this is uh, from the first word of this song in Latin, which simply means blessed. And uh, he pronounces a blessing upon God. And this is primarily a praise to God. And then the third one that we'll look at next time is called the Nunc Dimittis. And we'll find that in Luke chapter 2. And that is sung by Simeon. And it is recited when he meets the Christ child at the temple. So we'll begin today by taking a look at the occasion that brought about this, this inspired song for Zechariah. And that, of course, is the birth of his son, John the Baptist, as was foretold in the beginning of the book of Luke. Let's take a look at the scripture. We'll pick it up in chapter 1, verse 57. Here's what it says. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. Immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all the neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be for the hand of the Lord? was with him. Well, Zechariah, as you know uh, from chapter 1, Zechariah was a priest. He was serving in the temple, and uh, he and his wife Elizabeth had not had any children, and they were now in their very old age. So their prospects of having children was practically zero. But then an angel meets Zechariah while he is serving in the temple itself, in the, the holy place. And this angel tells him, you're going to have a child. Well, Zechariah kind of questions uh, whether this is to be so. And the angel says, well, fine, now you won't speak until the child is born. And the angel instructed him to call the child John. Now, traditionally, children were named for someone else in the family. That is either the father or the grandfather or something of that nature. But in this case, the angel says, call him John. 
And when it time comes, because Zechariah can't speak up, they're they're asking the mother, what's the name going to be? And she says his name's going to be John. And they're like, hold on, that's that's not right. No one in your family's named that. And Zechariah's, you know, motions for something. Give me something to write with. He writes it down. His name is John. And at that time, then his his voice comes back and he is able to speak. Um, the name John is interesting and profound because the name John means that Yahweh or the Lord is a gracious giver. He is a gracious giver. And indeed, I can't imagine uh, any more gracious and, and wonderful gift than for uh, two people to be given this opportunity to become parents, even in their old age. So he gets his voice back and says that his name is John. And then he goes on uh, to sing the song of praise, beginning in verse 67. Let's take a look at that. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to Abraham to grant us, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness, and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, it's our sincerest prayer that this reading and examination of these verses today will bring you great glory by building us up for the work of your ministry, by magnifying your name, showing us how great you are. We ask you indeed to bless this time we have together to study these things we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is essentially a hymn of praise to God, and hopefully it it feels like a psalm to you because it begins like a psalm. It says many of the, the common things that psalms say, especially with regards to praising the Lord. Like I said, the word benedictus, which would be the first word in the Latin translation of this, which the church used for many years, uh, is the word benedictus, which means blessed. And he gives in the very first verse right away his reasons for this blessing that he pronounces upon the Lord, for this praising of the Lord, that the Lord has visited and redeemed his people. Visited and redeemed his people. Now, this is interesting if you think about it, because these verbs are given in the completed sense. In other words, they're in a simple kind of past tense which we would use to indicate something that is done. But here he says he has visited and has redeemed his people. And he says this at a time before John the Baptist has done anything. John the Baptist has done no ministry at this point. Jesus has not come on the scene and done any ministry. Jesus hasn't been born yet. And so here he says, you have visited and you have redeemed the people of God. 
And so this fulfillment of promises we know is underway. It's something that's evolving. It's something that God is releasing a bit at a time. And we see in the uh, announcement to Zechariah, then the announcement to Mary and to Joseph, and then this birth of John the Baptist, that the plan is moving forward. But from our perspective, it's not complete yet. Now, why would he do that? Well, he is continuing a habit of the scriptures, a habit from the Old Testament of giving prophecies of God in a completed sense. And all through the Old Testament, as you read the prophecies of the coming Messiah, as you look through Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and, and Daniel and all the other prophets, they present future events as if they are already done because God is completely in control of these things. To God, they are done. They are his will, and he is doing his will, and he will not fail. And that's why the Bible confidently, at the, the people of God, through the ages who have been inspired by the Holy Spirit to prophesy, they have been inspired to do it in this way, to show that this is not just a prediction. This is history written in advance. This is powerful. See, Zechariah is in a position when he says these things that Mary has already visited Elizabeth and they've had their, their uh, discussion and their praise and worship service together. And Zechariah knows of these things. These things took place in his household. He knew Mary's situation. He knew Elizabeth's reaction to it. And he himself has seen his own miracle that they would conceive and bear it uh, son in their old age. He knew that John would be the prophet to prepare the way for the Messiah. Listen to what the angel said to him when he was at serving in the temple. This is what it says there. Uh, this John it's speaking of, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Before whom? Before the Lord their God. And he is to go before in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, then the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a for the Lord a people prepared. And so this is alluding to the book of Malachi in which Malachi speaks of the forerunner that would come. Malachi speaks of John the Baptist. Malachi, interestingly, is chronologically and, and literally at the very end of the Old Testament. And there it stands as the last book, uh, God not having spoken to his people for nearly 400 years until John the Baptist comes on the scene. So Malachi speaks of this. The very next thing that's going to happen is this one is going to come and go before and prepare the way of the Lord. Look how it says it here in the very last verse of the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi 4, 6. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. And this, of course, is what Zechariah is alluding to here. And then the other parts of what Zechariah has said are from other parts of, of Malachi and other books of the Bible. He knew John the Baptist was the forerunner of the Messiah. And this news of Mary comes along and he must figure this has got to be the Messiah himself in the womb of our relative Mary.
And so Zechariah praises God for it. Pla praises him, by the way, as John and Jesus being part of the same plan. Because look what he says here. You've raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. That is clearly speaking of the Messiah. That is speaking of Jesus Christ because he was of the house of David. John the Baptist was not of the house of David. He was a Levite, his father being a priest in the service at the temple. And so this is speaking of Jesus very clearly. Uh, the one who would come and save them from their enemies. But then he had turns his attention to the child, John. And he says, you, child, would be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And so he is saying this as if it's one event. The Lord has visited and the Lord has redeemed his people. And part of that's the Messiah. And part of that is John the Baptist. And this is a beautiful way that he has put these two things together into a singular thing to praise God for. Well, this brings us to a very important point that we need to understand how it is that we speak of the fulfillment of prophecy and how it is that we uh, speak then of the fulfillment of the promises of God. I want to show you a couple points here in just a moment. Uh, first of all, this when we interpret the prophecies of God and their fulfillments we must do two things now this deals with Old Testament prophecy we first of all have to ask the question what does this mean in terms of God's covenant with Israel that's going to give us the near context the context of the Old Testament itself when the prophecy is given it had to have meant something to the people alive at the time that it was given. And so we begin there. What are the old covenant implications? In this hymn of praise, we're speaking of the redemption and salvation of Israel. And it speaks of mercy for Israel because Israel had broken the covenant. They had gone into exile. They had, had pushed and tested God to the point of fulfilling all those things that would come upon them if they were disobedient in the land, including exile. This is a very important point because the prophets say very clearly, Israel has broken the covenant. And so the covenant, in fact, was being considered by God as defunct. And so that this would require then great mercy on the standpoint of God, because Israel had forfeited everything. If it were not for God's mercy, they would never have been brought back into the land to prepare a place and prepare the way for the Messiah to come. So the great mercy and the great grace of God is that he continued to deal with Israel, though they had broken his covenant. And it became clear to the people as the prophets unfolded, the more and more prophecies and more and more information about God's eventual plan that this would involve a king in the line of David and he would be the one to accomplish these things. God would grant them one day security from their enemies, peace in the land, freedom as John says to serve him in holiness and in righteousness. And so these things are very clearly what we're seeing John speak of. In the near term these would speak of the salvation of the nation Israel. 
But then when we look upon uh, these prophecies, we have to ask another question. Are there new covenant implications of the prophecies of which we speak? In other words, ask the question of an Old Testament prophecy. What does this mean in terms of God's new covenant through Jesus Christ? See, the prophecies were clear about one thing, and it was this. This reestablishment of the nation Israel, after they had broken the covenant, after they had been exiled from their land, but God graciously brings them back, it would never be business as usual. It would never be quite the same. And in fact, when they come back into the land and they rebuild the temple, they weep over the temple because it was a mere shadow of what it used to be. And then when they're back in the land, they have various governors, they have various leaders, but they never have a king from the line of David like they had before. Things were fundamentally different after the exile. It was as if God was absent. And indeed, when we saw in the book of Ezekiel, he was prophesying about the destruct, coming destruction of the temple, which in his context was in a matter of months or years. He predicted this destruction of the temple and he gave a vision of the spirit or presence or glory of God departing from that temple. And then there is no account of it having returned, except some time yet future when it would return in a different way, the person of Messiah. So the, as you study the prophets, you have to ask the question, what is Israel's real root problem? Why is it they struggle so to obey God? Why is it they constantly go after idols and other religions and, and things of that nature as if to almost on purpose provoke God into anger? They do this because of sin. They do this because the condition of human beings is all the way to the core. Their problem was not lacking the right leadership. Their problem was not having a few bad apples among them. Their problem was that each and every Israelite, like every other human being on the planet that's ever been born, has a sin nature to the core. And this is what we see. This was the failure. Sin was the failure. And so when we come to the book of Isaiah, he says, look, Israel's wound is uncurable. Their problem is something that, that is from head to toe. And then he speaks of Messiah coming with healing. He's not talking about physical healing. That wasn't their big problem. He's talking about healing the sin problem. In Isaiah 53, one of the most popular verses people like to cite to support the idea that God's supposed to bless us and heal us with physical healing all the time, they cite this verse. It says, by his stripes, that is by Jesus Christ, the passage is clearly about him, by his stripes we are healed. Well, everything else in the entire passage speaks of sin. And so, yes, by the punishment upon Christ, we are healed. We are healed from sin. That is the primary issue. Sickness and death, those things are symptoms of the fall. Those things are results of sin. And so God uses those in a way to speak of this coming healing, the most important healing, the salvation 
from sins, having a new heart put within us. God's new plan was to deal with this. And look how it's revealed here in his song, in Zechariah's song. He says that the, the role of John, what John is going to do as you, child, he says, will be called prophet of the Most High. You'll go before the Lord to prepare his way to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. So right here, he presents to us a formula. Salvation equals forgiveness of sins. It comes through the forgiveness of sins. And so this isn't speaking of salvation from Rome. This isn't speaking in salvation from other various enemies that could come across Israel, literal, physical uh, security threats. This is speaking of their real root problem, sin, and that they can find forgiveness for their sins. This was the preaching of John the Baptist who preached people to repent, who baptized people symbolically of their, their cleansing themselves from sin. And then Jesus comes preaching. And what does Jesus preach? He preaches repentance. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the apostles preached repentance. And all the faithful churches since that day have preached repentance. And you say, you might say, well, wait a minute. I don't know many churches that talk a lot about repentance. They talk a lot about purpose. They talk a lot about success. They talk a lot, a lot about overcoming difficulties and obstacles in life. And, and I say, yes, indeed, they're being unfaithful. Those things are side benefits of the gospel, but the gospel is that Jesus Christ came to pay the price for sins, that we could be reconciled to God by having our wrath put upon him on the cross, and we are granted his righteousness through faith. This is the gospel, and this is so very important to understand that it's right here in Zechariah's song that John the Baptist is going to give knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of their sins. And he's going to go on to say, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Peace with God. Peace with God is the primary benefit of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are reconciled to God. Before God intervenes in our lives, we are at enmity with God. Now, I don't want to erase or eradicate the idea that this is deliverance from literal security threats, from literal enemies, because I want to remind you, as it says here in 174, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness. This is a promise for the people of God, that there will be a time that they will be secure from all literal enemies, from all earthly enemies, and be able to serve God in holiness, and in righteousness. Well, how is that possible? It comes with Jesus' second coming. He began it now by the great sorting out that the gospel does. People are either believer or unbeliever. They are either saved or they are condemned. They are either alive or they are dead. And, and this is, Jesus said, I came with a sword that he would divide people into these two groups. And ultimately, when he returns for the final judgment, 
Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. That is believing and unbelieving alike. But then there will be this separation where some join Jesus in the new heaven and new earth to live out eternally with him in this peace and in this time of righteousness and serving him faithfully and joyfully and wonderfully with the absence of all things that are bad. All results of the uh, fall of mankind having been overturned will enjoy God forever. The other group will be cast into the lake of fire and will pay for their sins eternally. This is the gospel. They, we, that we have this opportunity to be guided into peace, peace with God and peace from enemies. And this is all a praise to God. And this is lifted up by Zechariah as something that is already at hand, something that he is already doing. As it says up here in verse 68, it says, He has visited and he has redeemed. As sure as Jesus came, born in a manger, served by the shepherds, worshipped by the magi, and, and made known to many, and as sure as John the Baptist went before him and proclaimed the kingdom and proclaimed repentance, as sure as those things have happened is the certainty with which he will return. And this is why we can exclaim with Zechariah, God has visited and God has redeemed his people. Because the future with God is as certain as the past. What a powerful thing and what a Christmas message if you really consider it. Because what you're seeing there and lying in the manger, this babe that has come in the most humble of circumstances to people that, that aren't even in a, a regular dwelling at his birth to people that become harassed by the authorities that seek to eradicate the Christ, have to move to a foreign land and then have to move back, but can't move where they want to. They have to go to a, another town because of fear of the king that would want to wipe them out. He's born in this most humble of circumstances. And yet as certain as it happened, it is happening and it will happen. And so indeed he has visited and he has redeemed his people. This is true beginning to end of the Old Testament. I want to point out a couple things to you as we go along that this Christmas message is not something when I was a when I was a new believer and I was I was young in the faith and I hadn't learned much already, I hadn't quite read through the entire Bible yet. I had this idea that the Old Testament was like God's plan A. He tried to do something with this nation Israel to reveal himself to the world, to establish a kingdom on earth. You know, if they had been obedient, they could have expanded. They would have ruled the world. God would have ruled through them or whatever. I had a total misunderstanding of what God was doing there. And then I thought, well, that didn't work out. So then God decides, okay, um, I'll send Jesus, I'll send my son and he'll be born and then he'll pay the price for sins. And I felt like that was a plan B, but how utterly wrong I was that every single event in the Old Testament was leading to and preparing the way it was the unfolding of God's plan to bring forth Christ at just the right time, that he would offer himself as this sacrifice for sins. And then make available to everyone, of all times, salvation. 
Let me show you. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God uh, began to unfold in time this great plan of his. As he confronted Adam and Eve and the serpent for what had happened in the garden, he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We spoke some a couple sermons ago, and it'll be posted soon, a sermon about the virgin birth, the importance of it, the necessity of the virgin birth. It's announced here right away because this word used here for offspring is the word that's normally attributed to the male contribution to reproduction in human beings, that this would be the word seed. And biologically, in the Hebrew, this referred to the male's contribution, but it says her offspring, the seed of the woman. And this biologically doesn't make sense, but we know it does make sense because he was not born of men. He was born only of a woman conceived by the Holy Spirit. Do you see the very moment Adam and Eve sinned, the announcements made, there's going to come one who's going to be different. He's going to be born of a woman so that he doesn't inherit the guilt of Adam. Take a look at this. Predicted from the very beginning, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He all of a sudden, this idea of offspring and descendants becomes singular. And he says, he, this one particular descendant of the woman, will bruise the head. That is a fatal wound of the serpent. But he himself will take upon a wound of his own as, as if a wound to the heel. A life-changing thing, but not death itself. Oh, this is this is wonderful uh, that this is all right there for us in the Old Testament. But then, as he unfolds his plan, he confuses the languages at the Tower of Babel in order to get people to fill the earth. He wanted many people. He wants many to be saved and to know him, and so he scatters them so that they would go abroad and and be diverse and multiply and form these various nations. And then he comes along to Abram and he picks this one person out. And he says, now the Lord said to Abram, go to your country and your kindred and, and your go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, which of course was Canaan, the promised land. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And then listen to this right here in the midst of the Old Testament. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The plan was always to encompass all of mankind. And it was going to be a benefit to all. And so he says immediately to Abraham, of course, fathers Isaac, who fathers Jacob, whose name becomes Israel. This is the nation Israel he's speaking to here. And he's saying, you're going to be a blessing to all the nations. Oh, this is powerful. And then after uh, dealing with Israel and they break their covenant, but yet he's prophesying that he will bring them back into the land, he speaks of a new covenant that he's going to make. We find it mentioned here in Jeremiah 31. 
He is a prophet that lived during the time of the exile. He lived through the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And Jeremiah is given this prophecy from the Lord. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So you see what he's saying here. There is a continuation of the plan, but it's going to be a fundamentally different covenant. And the question is, how will it be different? Well, that's why he goes on. Verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. He's going to write it on the hearts of people. The difference is the Holy Spirit of God being given to each and every believer. The Holy Spirit of God indwelling those believers to cause them to rightly follow God. Boy, this is powerful stuff, important stuff that we should take heed to take a look at. But let me show you uh, just momentarily another verse in the very next chapter of Jeremiah as he discusses this great new covenant. Here in the next chapter, Jeremiah 32, beginning at verse 40, take a look at what it says here. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts. Remember that speaking of the Holy Spirit, that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. What great love. Those are the words of love right there. With all my heart and all my soul, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make it so that I will actually put within their heart to do right. And that is the giving of the Holy Spirit. That is the new covenant. That is the beautiful thing that we're seeing Zechariah prophesy about. And of course, then we come to Malachi 4, 6, which we already took a look at. And that is Genesis through Malachi, your entire Old Testament is pointing toward this one to come, this Jesus. And indeed, everything up through Malachi is building up to that point. It's laying the foundation. God is giving the law to reveal himself. He's giving the law so that Jesus might fulfill it and have perfect righteousness. He is a dealing with the people of Israel to show what Jesus coming is going to mean. Without the background of the Old Testament, the coming of Jesus just doesn't make any sense to us. We will automatically interpret it improperly if we don't have the context of the whole of Scripture. And so Jesus comes and Zechariah is able to say with boldness, he has visited, he has redeemed. There's a couple encouragements I have to give you today along with this that will hopefully be a help to you. Uh, first of all, I want to point out this. I want us to understand our role and the role of our local church in the unfolding of these promises of God. This, this cannot be overstated truly, that the we're, we're not just to partake of this salvation. In other words, Jesus didn't come just 
to benefit us. Now, he came out of great love, and his coming is all benefit to us. It is life. But he also came to make us his agents in what he is doing. For everything spoken of the Christ child and what it means that he came speaks also of his body, the church. Do you understand that in the Bible, in the New Testament, the church is called the body of Christ? And what it means by that is it's not just simply suggesting that, oh, you're really close to him or you're really important to him. No, it's suggesting, no, you are a part of him. And so now we must reinterpret and reexamine because the Bible has said so what this relationship means and what our role is as people of God. It means that we are a part of the work of Jesus Christ. No, we can't pay the price for sin or anything like that. That was his and his alone. But we continue the gospel message. This is why he says to his disciples before he ascended, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey whatsoever I've commanded you. And so this was Jesus' command, was that we would continue the work of the proclamation. We have been given, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we've been given the ministry of reconciliation, God reconciling the world through us, the body of Christ. It is the church and the church alone through whom the gospel comes to all nations. God made it clear, I have chosen the foolishness of the word preached by these simple folk of the church for people to be saved. It is the church and the church alone that brings the gospel to all the nations. We are as much a part of the promise as Jesus Christ and John the Baptist are. The Lord has visited, the Lord has redeemed, and we can say that indeed of the present work of his body, the church, because Christ is in us. This is a story, this story, this coming of Christ that needed to be confirmed with signs and wonders. They preached it abroad. Then the apostles had these things written down so that all generations would experience the coming of Christ anew and bowed his man manger by the proclamation of his people. It's just like it's still the first century, over and over again, every generation, that we announce Jesus Christ has come. And what a blessing it is that we have this opportunity every year in the holiday of his first advent of Christmas to be able to say to people, Jesus Christ has come. God has so loved the world that he sent his only son to bear the wrath of God in our place and then offer to us eternal life through faith in him. And so we have this opportunity and the Christ child lays before you as if in the manger. And the question is this, will you bow and worship him? Will you stand by uninterested? Or will you actively seek to eradicate the very notion of Christ as King Herod did? This is the message we bring, and these are the responses to it. Jesus came into the world to split the world into his kingdom and the enemies of his kingdom. And the enemies of his kingdom will stand defeated forever.
So my first encouragement to you is understand your role as a believer in Jesus Christ and the role of your local church in the unfolding of these promises of God. Secondly, I encourage you to celebrate Christmas as not only the memorial of past events, but also as a present reality with great future implications. Because when we speak of the babe in a manger, we're talking about something that's relevant to us today as relevant literally as life and death itself, depending on whether we believe or don't. And when we look at that, it is so relevant today. It is relevant enough for us to demand that, that we ought to proclaim this to all. And it has a great future implications because his coming and our response to it determines for each and every human being the eternal state in which they will find themselves in. So let us celebrate Christmas. Yes, at, to, to commemorate what God has done and the great thing uh, of Jesus Christ coming into the world. But let us understand the present implications. Christ is come. And let us then be aware always of the future implications of the coming of Christ. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for this message today. We thank you for your scriptures. We thank you for the opportunity to proclaim these things in this format. And Lord, I pray that you'll bless the hearing of this to all. I pray, Lord, that you would continue this great work of drawing people to yourself, that they may be saved, that they may know you, and that they may then join you in your ministry of reconciliation. And Lord, I pray that you would make yourself known to all, that you would break down barriers within their hearts, that you would help people let go of their sins, let go of the things of this world, and embrace the truth that indeed they were made for fellowship with you eternally. I pray, Lord, that you would reveal that to many, and that they would be saved, and that they would bring you great glory and honor. Lord, we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, for your glory and our benefit. We thank you. Amen. And amen. And I hope you found this helpful. And I invite you to contact us. You can contact us at whitesrun.org. Uh, you can email me directly at whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com. And uh, I will answer your questions. I can help you find a church in your area. And it would be my honor and my blessing to answer your questions and even objections you might have if you have things that you're unclear about or things you, you don't agree with feel free to contact us. We'll have that conversation. May God bless you.